Frank Ling. And I'm Charles Lee. And you're listening to the Grok Science Show. That's right. It's a weekly look at the world of science, technology, and their effects on our daily lives. Coming up on today's program, Mr. Henry Nichols will join us to discuss Sleepyhead. So stay tuned for all of this. Plus the Grokatron 5000. And our world-famous question a week. Coming right up. Here. On the Grok's Science Show. Well, sleep, it's one of those that we look forward to, especially good night's rest. But what happens when sleep becomes a problem? Well, joining us today to discuss this issue is Mr. Henry Nichols. Mr. Nichols is the author of Sleepyhead, The Neuroscience of a Good Night's Rest. A well-renowned author, he has uh, written three books, and I've written also for magazines, Nature, New Scientist, and host of Guardian's Animal Magic blog. Again, his new book is called Sleepyhead. And, uh, Mr. Nichols, we're very pleased to have you today on the Grox Science Show. Great pleasure to be with you. I think uh, most people should be interested in, seeing as how we spend a third of our, our life sleep. Uh, I'm curious, why, why did you decide to write this book? So I've written um, books about animals and conservation. That, that was my background, and that seemed to me sort of a natural beat. But then I also have narcolepsy, a sleep disorder. And for a long time, I, I resisted writing about narcolepsy or sleep. I kind of, I don't know whether this rings well, if you if you're not, well, you don't really necessarily want to find out all that bad news. So I didn't delve in in a journalistic sense for, a, for maybe 10 years as, as a, while I was writing other stuff. Uh, and then I did write a feature on narcolepsy. And my goodness, it was just unbelievably fascinating suddenly learning about the brain, which I hadn't really done in too many features before. And then about something that really resonated with me and and uh, so i got into the science of well, the neuroscience and then and then into sleep which is a, again another fascinating area and the book eventually i sort of plucked up the courage to say right i'm going to write a book about not just narcolepsy but and not just all sleep disorders or as many as i can do but about sleep really so that took a while to get you know, get enough confidence that, you know, it's a big subject, sleep, as you say, we do a lot of it. How much of an issue are sleep disturbances for people? I mean, is it something that's becoming more common, or is it especially in the modern age where things seem to be distracting our attention during waking life? You're right. I mean, one of the gripes I have is that we do take sleep for granted, and it gets very little funding for, for research as a result. It's just, you know, it's just supposed to happen, isn't it? And um, mainly it does, although people with perfectly good sleep and because they don't think it's that important, tend to muck around with it and uh, they end up in a kind of less optimal state in their waking hours because of it. And they don't really have the explanation that it is as simple as sleep better. But then I also think there are there are obviously a whole bunch of sleep disorders that were always there. But they are becoming increasingly, well, doctors are realizing that these are real things. So for a long time, people were just sort of told to go away 
and and other explanations were, were given for the dysfunction in the daytime. Whereas with because sleep was so obvious, it wasn't even seen as a as a possible cause. Uh, and uh, some doctors are getting much better at recognizing this, but it's taken an awful long time to get to this point where sleep is becoming a matter of not just uh, you know, med- it's, a, it's a major public health issue. With respect to are things getting more common, I think apart from increased diagnosis, which is obviously happening, uh, of genuine sleep disorders, I, there are a couple of sleep disorders that are probably becoming more prevalent in society and that there would be sleep apnea, possibly as a result of, uh, I mean, it's very closely linked to um, BMI, body mass index and obesity. So if you are uh, larger, then you're going to be in a higher risk category for sleep apnea. So that that is probably happening. And then insomnia of various sorts of different varieties of flavors of insomnia, if you like. But one I'm particularly concerned about is um, teenagers. And I, I, I love technology and I love mobile phones. And I'm talking to you through what is, you know, across the Atlantic via this incredible thing that is a, a smartphone and indistinguishable from magic. Uh, and yet these devices so um, addictive in the brilliant content that's been created in the hands of um, adolescents uh, inevitably, uh, regardless of the content, which is another issue completely, but just the number of hours that children are now spending on devices and screens and how difficult it is as a parent to remove them from them does inevitably put a pressure on sleep. And because society doesn't yet take sleep sufficiently seriously, it is one of the first things to to go. So I, I think we need to be very careful about this resulting in essentially chronic sleep deprivation in, in teens, which is, yeah, I think that that is a big issue. So the, the couple of things are increasing, I think. We just need to be careful. How much then do we really know about need for sleep? What's its function? How does it change with age? It's remarkable that we still don't really know uh, the function of sleep. So I, I made a point about, you know, I interviewed a lot of people and a lot of sleep researchers and doctors for my book, and I asked most of them the simple questions, what's the function of sleep? And they always give an answer, but the answers were quite often different. And so I kind of conclude that from that, these people at the top of their game are giving different answers. It just means that actually, probably what everyone knows is sleep is performing many very important functions simultaneously. So it isn't a simple answer. There are lots of things that happen during sleep in the brain, but it's a very, very active process. And it is not something that you can dispense with. It is the flip side of functional wakefulness. You need it very much if you, your brain needs it, 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 this downtime or this um, it's doing different functions so one of them you're strengthening synapses the connections between the neurons in certain areas possibly linked with things that your brain has prioritized things it's going to be important to remember you're pairing back other stuff because you experience a lot of guff during the day and a lot of it is irrelevant and you 
don't want to waste precious brain space storing or, or energy storing pointless information so there's a lot of pairing back to do there's possible clearing out of um, the byproducts of metabolism replenishing neurotransmitters um, so all these things are probably going on and then there's probably also a kind of small energy saving function it would be uh, from an evolutionary perspective a bit weird to be full-on metabolically functional at the same level the same whack for 24 hours a day every day and the sun goes down and everything else you know it becomes a bit harder to function for a, a diurnal species like humans in the dark why would you carry on motoring at, at full so that there's a kind of argument a very sensible plausible argument that from an evolutionary perspective you've got to make you've got to change your behavior and sleep is probably an evolved way to allow your brain to do this important recovery so it's, it's a it's it's just the flip side of wakefulness so we all think waking is what it's all about and let's cut back on sleep and get more wake you cannot do that productively so if you want functional wakefulness you've got to you've got to get the sleep it varies the amount of sleep you need we don't really know why necessarily it varies and there are very arguments for it but you you sleep the most when you're a baby of course or even prenatally um and you will never sleep that amount again probably it's there's a lot of well we know the brain is developing at this point and sleep is doing all this really active all these connections are forming and then the sleep gradually uh reduces as as you grow through childhood there's a very interesting change that happens at puberty which links to what i was saying before so at puberty the, the teenage brain seems to shift in time zones it's like the teenager jumps to two time zones behind you as an adult as a parent and this is why teenagers suddenly from going to bed at a reasonable time maybe 8 p.m as as tweens and then they can't get to sleep before midnight and this is because the brain has actually physiologically changed its response to sun to the sun to sunlight to light and so there's a delay and this means teenagers phys physically cannot get to sleep until late which means if you wake them up really early for school because you have to uh they are now sleep deprived because they just still need the same amount of sleep roughly as they as their prepubescent siblings uh, so that's interesting and then it's t sleep tends to stabilize in late teens early 20s to what adults would refer to a sort of six to nine hours is, is a is the is the is considered normal healthy sleep and it very much varies from brain to brain so don't anyone tell you that you need eight hours sleep without quite a dangerous message eight hours sleep a night is not for everyone and if your brain is one of those brains that cannot sleep for eight hours a night and you are told and you think you are having to sleep eight hours you have effectively created insomnia you're going to lie there two hours awake think getting anxious about those two hours you can't get so six hours appears from an epidemiological point of view to be perfectly healthy it's not linked to at least you know from yeah it's not linked to any long-term health conditions go go under that and everything's 
off off the board. It's a totally different picture. So sleep deprivation on a regular basis, less than six hours, is demonstrably a dangerous position to be in. You're in a high-risk category for everything that can go wrong with the body. And I, do I need to list them? It's pretty horrific. You know, it's just it's just this obesity, uh, type 2 diabetes, hypertension, cardiovascular disease, uh, cancer, um, stroke, all cause mortality. So you're just more likely to die if you're going to be skimping on sleep. So this just underscores what anyone with a sleep disorder like narcolepsy will tell you is that sleep is really, really important. Yeah, I think most people, I hope most people listening are kind of going, yeah, God, that's so obvious. What were you talking about? We need to get to a position where everybody is really saying that. And people who celebrate working hard and sleeping less, and uh, I think it's quite a dangerous message, and I don't want to hear those people. And I think they need to be called out and we need to really nurture that sleep in order to become much more productive and functional in the daytime. And it takes, it's not complicated, but it takes quite a lot of effort to contain all the things that can interfere with, with sleep. You know, there's much talk that's changing school hours to accommodate, for example, the changing sleep habits of teens based on that. Well, yeah. A couple of weeks ago, I spoke to the researcher at Brown University, Mary Karskadden, whose basic career was, she made her career on this, and um, from the 1980s onwards, was very interested in teenage sleep and that shift, and had produced evidence as way far back as that, really clear evidence of this biological shift, and it's not just teenagers mucking around their parents and trying to stay up. You look at the secretion of the hormone melatonin, which is the one that we know is linked to sleep. It signals sleep to the rest of the body. And the actual release of that from the pineal gland in the brain shifts. So there's this real change. And this, so we've known about this. And you present this evidence and you make this really clear case that teens, we are causing sleep deprivation, but getting them up so early. And in America, you do get your, stu- your students up for middle and high school at exactly this vulnerable age at a ridiculously early time. I think, I can't remember, it's, it's you know, a lot of schools, one, one, in, one in 20 will be starting at 7.30, which means the children are having to get up to before that. That is like an adult being prized out of bed at four in the morning. And it's um, not a particularly, it's not, the brain is not working properly then. So this argument has been going around, but you don't get, you don't, we don't, haven't seen the change that is needed. And it is a little bit puzzling to me. And the, the explanations are down to people don't like change. And I find that, yeah, kind of, I understand that, but it is a bit depressing. You have this massive body of scientific evidence. It's pretty compelling. And the schools that have done change and compared things like cognitive function, school results, car accidents, before and after the change, the benefits are so clear. And the costs of doing it, there may be some costs in some areas, there are probably on balance financial savings of doing this too. Um, children come out with better results, they have, uh, they're more productive members of society, they have higher incomes, taxation, all sorts of things. So people have followed through an economic argument uh, California, amazingly, last week, uh, just 
at the beginning of September, has essentially voted in favour of statewide mandate to set school start times no earlier, across the state, no earlier than 8.30. And that is in line with the American Academy of Pediatricians, their recommendation from, I think, 2014. So that's been there, a clear recommendation from the the nation's pediatricians for many years and followed up by all the major and the National Institutes of Health and the CDC um, have backed that recommendation. So California now has made this, and I think that is a big step because, you know, there will be opposition when it happens and the benefits become clear and people realize, well, actually, that cultural shift that we needed to do wasn't as difficult as we felt, then other states, I hope, will follow. There's probably much that can go wrong in the brain, but I'm wondering if there are particular systems that seem to be affected more in the brain that affect sleep, particular things that we do to our brains or promote good sleep. So I think that it's useful to to separate out sleep duration and sleep quality, quantity and quality of sleep. So we've talked a little bit about the quantity, and that's important to give yourself enough time for what your brain needs uh, and the rest it needs. If you're not sure how much it needs, then you need to do something called a keep a sleep diary for a couple of weeks. Don't, I think, at this point, rely on Fitbits and the data they're producing. It's not sufficiently reliable yet, much more reliable, at least in terms of the science that we've been able to test. Because the the Fitbits, there's just too much variation between brands. um, And the data coming out is, you know, they say you slept and you know you went to the loo and it didn't show up. That's that's kind of telling me these things aren't working properly. So I go back to something called a sleep diary. Keep that for a couple of weeks. Work out how much sleep you're actually getting on average. That's including the weekends. And this roughly gives you an idea of what your brain needs. Then you need to just work on that figure and consolidating it because the, at least a lot of sleep disorders one of the problems is is broken sleep and the, the fracturing of those hours. So the duration, I, I have narcolepsy, which, you know, most people brilliantly now know is this uh, sleep disorder. It's a hypersomnia. It involves too much sleep at the wrong times. Uh, so I sleep a lot, yet I am also sleep deprived. And those two statements don't, I have now, I, mean, I love that paradox and that kind of was made it fun to write about. But actually, it's not really a paradox. I sleep a lot, but none of it is functional, useful, productive sleep. Not a lot of it. And this is because narcolepsy is the nighttime sleep, at least, is very, very fractured, maybe waking up 20, 30 times a night. And those interruptions break what the brain is really after, which is consolidated deep sleep. That's, those, those are those mornings you wake up and you feel brilliant, like, oh, that was an incredible sleep. And I, ha- I hadn't had one of those for oh, 20 years living with narcolepsy, and I'd forgotten what that was like. And then through various tricks that I learned as I did this journey through sleep, I managed to at least probably, probably not recapitulate a sleep I once had, but it was it was a sleep I'd not had for 20 years, and um, I've remembered what sleep was all about. So that, that's about getting consolidated sleep. There are lots of things that can interrupt that. So sleep apnea does it in one way. This is where you stop breathing or, or even snoring. 
snoring can can create these smaller interruptions or less frequent interruptions perhaps you wake yourself up snoring or with sleep apnea snoring has got more exaggerated you actually stop breathing for maybe 10 20 seconds uh, and then you wake up maybe not consciously but from um you know it's, it's a, you come out of the deep sleep to do this gasping and recover and then you just drift back down you may not in the morning remember that you did it but from um, your brain's perspective it was interrupted and if that's happening sometimes 20 30 times an hour you're going to have you're going to be sleepy in the day, really, really badly sleepy, in a, in a way that's very similar to narcolepsy. And a lot of other sleep disorders pr- present like that. So period, there's, there's limb movement disorders or pain, and all of these things can um, interrupt and interfere with sleep. So it's, it's really a question of, I think, educating, learning about sleep and recognizing these things that are sometimes so obvious that you just sort of hadn't, paid attention to them they were so in front of your face that you couldn't quite focus and then when you see them then you can find out ways to manage your specific thing that, that's interrupting and all the usual stuff i mean so i'm sort of assuming that everyone is already anyone who's interested in really good trying to get really good sleep has to start with really basic stuff but most people are already doing that but paying attention to sleep hygiene so other those are just containing really obvious things that are going to interrupt your sleep like caffeine um nicotine you know, if you're going to drink a coffee late at night you've still got you know the half-life of caffeine in the bloodstream is something like 10 depends on your body and your metabolism but 10 hours maybe so 10 hours later you've still got half of that stimulant knocking around your blood it's no don't really sleep so well so you shouldn't really be drinking coffee after midday don't drink too much alcohol uh, it puts you to sleep that's great but you also kind of wake up at about three or four with a dry mouth and your brain is actually probably seeking out a bit more of the uh, of the addictive fix and the same goes for nicotine so you're smoking and you quite often will wake up wanting a cigarette and that's because your brain is you know so you need to remove basic stuff like that don't use phones in the bedroom don't in fact have a tv in the bedroom don't do anything in the bedroom um really apart from sleeping and if you're not sleeping in the bedroom get out so that's one of the really for insomniacs that's the real the the most common thing is just lying there getting more anxious and, and what this is doing and this is pretty pretty well established because the best treatment for insomnia is to is 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 what's called um stimulus control so removing all these other things that your brain has now associated with the bedroom so don't even read don't definitely don't use take your phone as the bedroom temptation to be texting or uh checking emails and don't watch tv your brain builds up this psychological association between wakefulness now and the bedroom so every time you go in that you have effectively are going to be awake so you need to break that it's not that difficult to break you just need to be consistent for a week or two of you're lying there you're awake get out go away and then only go back when you're really tired again so go and do something else go and do something productive for a bit and it's probably a painful two weeks 
three weeks to break that, but you've just got to keep going. And then it, uh, it's broken. Uh, so, yeah, anything that's going to interfere with, you just need to sound, I've found. You know, we live in a, in, in light, well, gosh, we haven't talked about light at all. I mean, light is underpins everything. And it, this goes back to the beginning of our discussion um, with these circadian organisms that are, respond to light. And the reason we fall asleep at night is because our brains do different things. And the main trigger at uh, different times of the day and the main trigger is the wavelength of light that we see at different times in the day. And you've got to understand these and then, oh gosh, that's what's happening. Um, and take some control over those. Learn about sleep and all the things that can interfere with it and then spot them in your own life and then control them, I think. You document in the book your own journey with disordered sleep and discoveries of what your journey through sleep, something maybe that surprised you most about sleep? Uh, gosh, yeah, well... I surprise myself very much. I've lived for 20 years with dysfunctional sleep, and I thought, you know, that's it. Narcolepsy is caused by um, the loss of a very, very valuable neurotransmitter, one that we only learned about as a result of narcolepsy. But uh, everyone without narcolepsy still got it and needs to know about it. It's called hypocretin. also goes by the name of orexin. This is like an orchestrating uh, neurotransmitter right in the center of the brain. Not very many cells produce it, but it's fabulously important. And um, so I've lost those as a, as a result of an autoimmune attack. So you get the flu, your immune system goes around destroying the flu. But unfortunately for some people, in some population of cells that produces this, this wakey hormone, neurotransmitter and um, so I thought well that's it the cells have gone there, there is no cure for narcolepsy that's it um, I'm going to be this dysfunctional for the rest of my life but the simple act of I mean it was pretty quite a lot of work on my part I should say but it's, uh, it's only a matter of education so just me learning about how the brain works and how these these neural networks work and then rec and I've been able to realize that I may not be able to replace those cells and pull back that hypocretin, but I, there were other sleep disorders that were hiding, things that I could control. Um, and I'd just written them all off as narcolepsy, and that was a bit of a, it's a bit embarrassing, frankly, to, to admit that. And I think a lot of people will, you know, just be passing a whole load of stuff and not being able to separate it out. So I could improve my sleep as bad as it is. It's got better by reducing my snoring or finding ways to stop that. And that, that stopped some of the interference that was actually nothing to do with narcolepsy. It was just snoring. And then um, insomnia. So I have developed part, some of those. I realized psychological links with the bedroom and the, you know, that I just got used to being awake waking up a lot in the bed and, and so finding ways to break those really is and the way that the brain responds to light um, absolutely fabulous um, science and learning about it and understanding it and then paying attention to light in a completely different way I, I've got a little bit obsessed about it some of the kids in the house now if I mention circadian rhythm they just groan groan at me but uh, it's 
it, it underpins absolutely everything. So, yeah, just people go away and find out and stuff. And, uh, yeah, you, it's fun. There's, there's lots to learn. And the science, you know, the science is, has, has been exciting with sleep, but it is still a field that we, so many things we don't know, not least, we don't really understand uh, what sleep or even dreams are for. And, and there's a lot of exciting science still to come. Well, it is a very fascinating book uh, you've written. Uh, we've just uh, been talking with Henry Nichols. He's the author of Sleepyhead, The Neuroscience of a Good Night's Rest. And uh, Mr. Nichols, I want to thank you very much for joining us today on the Grok Science Show. Thank you very much. And that's all for this week's edition of the Grok Science Show. Make sure you tune in next week for more from the world of science and technology. If you'd like to contact us here, you can email us at science at groks.net. For Grok Science, I'm Frank Ling. And I'm Charles Lee. Make sure you also see us on the web at www.grox.net. Have a great afternoon and keep on grokking.